Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, Joshua chapters 7 and 8. As we continue this week in Joshua 7, the subject is still Achan, the battle for the city of Ai, and the law of Erem. And this principle of Erem, in English usually called the ban, B-A-N, is so pervasive in the Bible that it would be proper to speak of it as a pattern as well as a principle. And this pattern shows up in some pretty unlikely places. For instance, it is said that the Levitical sacrificial system is based primarily on two things. The requirement of blood for atonement for sins and the provision within God's justice system to substitute the life of an innocent creature for the life of a guilty man. But there's also a third foundational element present in the makeup of that sacrificial system, the principle of the ban. Now the law of the ban is that banned things are things that God has declared as his holy property. The English word ban is chosen to translate the Hebrew word harem because the idea is that to ban something means to dedicate something exclusively to the Lord and therefore disallow its use by any human or perhaps to restrict access to that banned thing. Now, while ban, the law of harem, is technically an ordinance that pertains to holy war and most directly affects the disposition of the spoils of war taken from the enemy, as we see here in Joshua, the overall principle is based on the concept that property devoted to God becomes God's holy property. And holy property is untouchable. Anyone who would dare to misappropriate God's holy property or to use it in an unauthorized way would pay the consequence of forfeiting their life for doing it. Now this may sound like a simple matter of criminality. That the person who partakes of the banned property, God's declared holy property, has simply broken the law, and so the lawbreaker is subject to the curse of the law, the prescribed punishment. In other words, that it's no different, really, than if a person who had stolen the banned property had murdered or raped or committed adultery, break a law, pay a price. But as we near the end of Joshua chapter 7, we're going to find that the matter was far more about the Lord protecting his holiness than about someone committing an intentional and serious sin. Let's begin by refreshing our memories and rereading a, a, a small section of Joshua 7. Open your Bibles to Joshua 7. If you uh, have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 248. And we're going to read starting at verse 16. Go to the end. Joshua 7, verse 16. 
So Yahshua, Joshua got up early in the morning and had Israel come forward one tribe at a time and the tribe of Judah, Judah was taken. He had the families of Judah come forward and took the family of Sarki. He had the, family, had the Sarki family come forward by household leaders and Safdi was taken. He had household leaders come forward one person at a time and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Safdi, the son of Serach, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Joshua said to Achan, My son, swear to Adonai, God of Israel, that you will tell the truth and confess to him. Tell me now, what did you do? Don't hide anything from me. And Achan answered Joshua, It's true. I have sinned against Adonai, the God of Israel. Here is exactly what I did. When I saw that the, there with the spoils was a beautiful robe from Shinar, five pounds of silver shekels and one and one quarter pound wedge of gold, I really wanted them. So I took them. You will find them hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And Joshua sent managers who ran to the tent and it was all there hidden in his tent, including the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and put them down before Adonai. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Sirach, and the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything he had, and brought them up to the Achor Valley. Joshua said, why have you brought trouble on us? Today Adonai will bring trouble on you. Then all Israel stoned him to death, burned them to ashes, and stoned them. Over him they piled a great mound of stones, which is there to this day. Finally Adonai turned away from his fierce anger. And this is why that place is called the Valley of Achor to this day. I told you last week that in this Search for the culprit who would turn out to be a Khan who had absconded with the Lord's spoils of war that we weren't witnessing a trial. Okay. Now allow me to amend that statement just a bit by saying that this was not a humanly run trial using normal legal procedures and decided by a human judge. Rather this was a heavenly run trial by God as the victim, the accuser, the witness, and the judge. Okay. This was not a human trial to be brought about by human discovery in which by means of investigation the goal was to ascertain the truth and ferret out that responsible party. Rather, this was a divine trial a divine proceeding in which the Lord, who already knew who the guilty party was, with certainty, was going to supernaturally reveal the identity of that guilty person to the officials of Israel so that they could take proper action against him, thus satisfying God's justice and lifting the consequence of that sin off of Israel's back. Thus, what we see in verses 16 through 18 is a winnowing process of all 12 tribes coming forward and then from all the tribes one, Judah, 
is identified. And then from Judah, its clans are screened until one clan is separated out. Then from the chosen clan, families are questioned. And then finally, from the selected family, the heads of household are marched forward until the guilty one is revealed. The details of the procedure that we really don't have spelled out for us is that lots are being drawn at every stage of this winnowing process as the method the Lord uses to communicate to Joshua and Israel just who the criminal is. Now, the thought of lots being drawn to determine guilt or innocence probably would unnerve us today. I know it would me, and especially so in our democratic society. But again, remember, this was a divine proceeding. No man had even been aware that a serious trespass had occurred. And thus, no man had accused anybody of anything. Therefore, in the law of Moses, we don't find that drawing lots is used as a means to come to a judicial decision when the crime is human upon human. However, here in Joshua, the crime that was perpetrated by Achan was human upon God. No human was harmed or violated per, per se, only the Lord. Therefore, the means of arriving at a just decision was different. So while in a human trial, witnesses are needed to present evidence and mount a case against the accused, in this direct violation of God's holy property by Achan, the procedure has nothing to do with determining guilt or innocence. It's only about Yehovah revealing the guilty party to the human authorities. Now, let me remind you that all of this lot drawing happened was happening because a calamity of sorts had just occurred. Okay. Israel's army had just been routed when they attempted to conquer the Canaanite city of Ai and 36 Israelite soldiers were killed. And as a result, Joshua was in a state of shock. The people were scared and demoralized because this wasn't supposed to happen to them. And God was angry. The Lord was demonstrating to Joshua and to us that the problem that led to Israel's defeat wasn't necessarily a poor battle strategy or execution of the plan. Rather, it was that Israel had become arrogant, self-confident after their easy victory at Jericho. But also that not everything went well in accordance with Jehovah's instructions at Jericho, unbeknownst to Joshua. At Jericho, a great sin against Jehovah had occurred in secret. A member of Israel took some of the banned property in Jericho, and this was the underlying reason for Israel's defeat at Ai. Now, this gives me an opportunity to remind you of something that, frankly, just drives modern Christians, primarily Western Christians like us, to anger and denial. The Lord had assigned a kind of communal responsibility upon all Israel for the sin of one man, Achan. Now, let's explore that for a few minutes. I did not say that communal guilt 
had been placed upon all Israel because the Lord didn't say that in his eyes every Israelite was guilty of trespass against him because of what Ikhan had done. But every member of Israel was now under the burden of the consequence of one man's sin. Does that concept bother you just a little bit? I've heard it said that while, the reality, while that reality that I just told you about may, be, may have been so in the Old Testament era, that in the New Testament era, that's all changed and no one is responsible or bears any burden except for his own sins. Wrong. First, that assumption theologically mixes up apples and oranges. And the subject is a very complex one that can only be properly explained in Torah because it's only lightly touched upon in the New Testament. Just mentioned in passing almost. Okay. It is one thing to be held guilty for another man's sins. It's quite another to find yourself bearing a consequence caused by another man's sin. And as I just explained, it's the latter situation that's being demonstrated here in Joshua 7. But, you know, don't ever think that that other possibility is a thing of the past either. Can we be held guilty as individuals before the Lord for the sin of our Father? Yeah. The Father of everybody in this room is Adam. And since the day our original parents sinned, we've all borne their guilt. It's the overwhelming reason that we need a Messiah in the first place. Over and over we're told in the scriptures that we were conceived in sin as a result of our original father's sin, Adam. And that we do bear the personal guilt not just responsibility, but guilt, because Adam is our father. The only people in existence who do not bear that guilt of Adam's sin are those who place their faith in Yeshua. Because it was Messiah Yeshua's divine purpose to remedy this situation for all who would trust in him. Because his blood did something that the blood of no bull or no goat could ever do or ever did in history. Atone for the guilt of Adam that became mankind's communal guilt. Theologians call this particular kind or category of sin and guilt the, the sin nature. That is, when Adam sinned, something within his spiritual DNA became corrupted. It had a direct negative effect on his mind and even on his body. And all of this was passed along to every human who would ever come after him. Nobody could avoid it. Yet there is another and different, though related, kind of category of sin and guilt. And that is the guilt that results from actions and behaviors. It's this kind of sin that's being dealt with in Joshua 7. Achan personally committed a trespass against the Lord and thus only he bears the guilt. Unfortunately, while Israel doesn't bear the guilt, the heavy burden 
of the results of Akan's sin are borne by the entire community. That's not allegorical explanation. This is exactly what the passages say. Now, Akan's sin is the same kind of sin, behavior, actions, intents, that the sacrificial system of animal blood could produce forgiveness for most but not all trespasses. The sacrificial system worked. God ordained it, and those who followed it with a pure heart indeed had the guilt of their actions and behaviors removed. Now, I've pointed out the literally scores of time, times in the law, in the Torah, that the scriptures say, after prescribing a, a sacrifice for a certain sin, and he shall be forgiven. Over and over I've read this to you. But the sacrificial system could not remove the kind of guilt that all men carry within us, regardless of our personal behavior, the sin of Adam, the sin that changed the course of human history. Jesus' blood is so holy, so perfect, so powerful, that even that original sin, the sin present in our very nature, can be forgiven. Bottom line, communal guilt is alive and well and the whole world bears it and the only ones that have been made exempt from the consequences of this communal guilt are Yeshua's disciples. Communal responsibility is also alive and well and the church still bears communal responsibility right along with everybody else in this world. When a member of the body to which we might belong, sins, we can and probably will be affected by it in some way. That, that membership in a body, depending on your situation, can mean your family, your community, your nation, your church, your ministry, your synagogue, whatever body you worship and commune and fellowship with. That's why we find Paul telling the Corinthians to drive out a person from the church, a believer who is sinning and will not admit it and will not repent from it because otherwise all members of that body are going to become affected by it in the form of bearing its burden. Its burden, not guilt. Now let's understand the seriousness of this situation in Joshua 7. The Lord says that Israel communally has broken the covenant with him as a result of Echan's misappropriation of banned goods. And so now, the $64,000 question facing Joshua and Israel's leaders is, how can Israel restore its covenant relationship with Jehovah? This is the lesson that the Lord is teaching Joshua. And it's why this story of Achan has fascinated and, and informed Jewish and Christian Bible scholars because the means of mankind restoring its broken relationship with God is the whole point of salvation and redemption. In verse 19, 
The lot reveals that the criminal is Echan, and Joshua confronts him. But at the same time, here is the beginning of restoration. Joshua asks Echan, in a rather fatherly way actually, to confess. And the reason he's asking for Echan's confession is, it says literally in Hebrew, to set forth the glory of Jehovah. In other words, sacred lots, as directed by God, have outed Achan, Achan. And Achan needs to publicly confirm that the Lord has indeed supernaturally revealed the truth, thus further confirming that the Lord's justice is always perfect. It shows that nothing can be hidden from him. But notice that confession is the necessary first step towards reconciliation with God. Nothing good happens until confession is made. And Achan demonstrates the proper format for confessions. That whatever act of lawlessness one commits, it is an act that by definition is against God. If we lie, it's against God. If we steal, it's against God. Therefore, it is to God that we must confess. Naturally, as revealed in verses 20 and 21, the items Achan took were because they pleased his eyes. He took things that were materially valuable and enticing and that would give him personal benefit. The first thing he took was a coat or a robe from Shinar. Shinar was a region of Babylon noted for its, 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 its beauty and extravagancies. Okay. This was probably a royal robe worth a lot of money. Achan okay. also took a goodly amount of silver and gold, knowing, of course, that he was doing wrong. He hid the items in the ground under his tent. Now, after Achan confessed it all, Joshua sent men running to Achan's tent. Indeed, there were the items right where Achan said they would be. God's holy property lying inside a hole in the ground underneath a common tent. Well, now something terrible and instructive happens. Achan, his entire household, his livestock, his possessions, and the stolen banned items were taken outside the camp to the valley of Echor, and there all living creatures associated with Achan were killed. Everything Achan owned was burned up with fire and a mound of stones was placed over the remains. Achor, the valley of Achor, is a play on words. It means trouble. Since Achan caused such trouble, then Joshua said the penalty would now be trouble upon him. And so the place where this trouble upon Achan occurred was appropriately named trouble. Achor. Now what happened here is that the man, Achan, who stole the band, these items that were devoted to God, and his family themselves became banned. They became property devoted to God. They became as substitutes for the holy property. 
and were thus treated as holy property is treated, they were destroyed, burned up with fire as the only prescribed means to give holy property directly to the Lord. Notice something else. In Jericho, everything that was considered spoils of war, ban, was devoted to God. All of it. Every last thing. The people of Israel were to receive nothing from the spoils from Jericho. So we find that the enemy, that the, the people that were barricaded inside of Jericho, were killed. And then everything, people, livestock, their possessions, were burned up and then left to lie under the stones of the collapsed walls of Jericho. So naturally, we see that same pattern as what happened to Jericho applied to Echan and his family and possessions. They became God's enemy due to Echan's sin of stealing the ban, and thus they became ban. They're killed. They're burned up. They have stones piled atop them. It's precisely what happened to the ban of Jericho. This then brings us full circle. Back to the beginning of our lesson when I explained that, holy prop uh, that, that, that property that has become holy as a result of its being selected and used for sacrifices to God, animals, produce, is similar in nature to the holy property that is the ban that results from holy war. And there is a peculiar aspect of God's holy property that we've talked about in the past, but we need to review it. It is that calling God's holy property holy is literal. It's not metaphorical, it's not rhetorical. Okay. Things devoted to God take on a real and literal holiness once God accepts them. And the thing we learned months ago about both holy objects and people and impure objects and people is that they can transmit their holiness or impurity to other people and other objects by contact and in some cases by mere proximity. We see this demonstrated in Leviticus primarily as it pertains to defilement. That is, for instance, if a person contracts serot, that divinely caused skin disease that's incorrectly usually uh, called leprosy, that person can infect an object or another person just by touching them. If a dead mouse falls into a cooking pot, that cooking pot itself contracts ritual impurity, not so much because a mouse touched it, a rodent, but because it was dead. Death being the worst sort of ritual impurity. Then if something is cooked in that now defiled pot, the food itself contracts the impurity. Then if somebody eats that impure food, they become impure. This is not a joke. It's not superstition. It's carefully laid out and explained in the Torah, and it's quite a serious problem. Now, there are several remedies prescribed in Torah 
For a person or an object that contracts uncleanness, and it ranges from a simple washing with water all the way up to being destroyed if the object is too porous and so it absorbs so much impurity that it can't be washed out. But what happens when we're dealing with the opposite end of the scale? What happens when we're dealing not with impurity, but with holiness? The answer is that we find that holiness can also indeed be transmitted in the same way as impurity is transmitted by touch. However, God has effectively rendered the possibility of the transmission of holiness from one thing to another, from one person to another, as a divine theory, so to speak. Because he refuses he carefully guards over it. He will not allow accidental or unauthorized transmission of holiness to occur, even though by its nature and spiritual laws it can happen. Now don't be confused by this. The concept of the possibility of holiness being transmitted in an unauthorized way, but the Lord interrupting it and never permitting it, is not double talk, it's quite straightforward. Okay. As an illustration, of how this works. We know, for instance, that some blood diseases are communicable by touch. If we allow diseased blood to touch our skin, especially if we have an open sore cut, it's possible that we can become infected. But if that possibility can be rendered as mere medical theory, if we wear latex gloves, masks, take all the proper precautions, build a barrier, between us and it. We have a way to take what can happen but not allow it to happen. We can interrupt the process. Holiness can be spread by touch to unauthorized people or objects, but God doesn't allow it. The problem for mankind is that Jehovah's solution and method for controlling unauthorized transmission of holiness is to simply destroy whatever is about to become holy as a result. In other words, if a tabernacle, incense burner, used in service to God, were to be improperly removed by someone from the tabernacle, taken, to, taken home to their tent, and it comes in contact with, say, a cooking pot, by all spiritual laws, that cooking pot would become holy. Whatever was cooked in it would become holy. That would be transmitted eventually to whoever ate the food. But the way God handles such a thing is to immediately destroy the cooking pot and usually the person who facilitated the improper use of God's holy object, thus stopping it before it can happen. We saw this exact scenario play out with Aaron's first high priests, with Aaron's sons, who took holy incense burners put what the Bible calls strange fire into them. In other words, they took coals from a common wood fire instead of from the brazen altar and laid them upon holy objects that had been ordained for service in the tabernacle. The Lord burned up the holy instruments and burned up Aaron's sons. Otherwise, holiness would have been transmitted from the holy incense burners to those common coals. We saw a similar thing 
later on when Korah and several men from his clan decided they didn't much like God's decision of Aaron's clan being the only ones allowed to present holy incense to the Lord. So they brought their personal fire pans from home, filled them up with their own coals and their own incense, and tried to present them to the Lord inside the sacred tabernacle grounds. Their proximity to the Lord would have caused his great holiness to transmit to the fire pans and to them making that all holy without his permission. And so you, Jehovah supernaturally burned up those fire pans as well as the men, about 200 of them. Thus, holiness was prevented from being transmitted outside of God's control. Now, I hope you're starting to see how this applies to our story of Achan. Achan had touched the ban from Jericho. By definition, the ban's holy property, Achan was theoretically contaminated with a level of holiness to which he was not entitled because it would have transmitted from God's holy property to him. What's God's solution to that problem? Destruction. Destruction of the unauthorized receiver of holiness, be it an object or a man. Now, a greater theological problem is to answer why was Achan's family and all of his possessions and all of his livestock also burned up. I mean, it is possible that his family was complicit in the robbery of God's ban, but there's no direct indication of that in the scriptures. But what role did the livestock play? I must say that most reasonable people in a compassionate knee-jerk reaction See, God's destructive response is awfully extreme and merciless in this situation. So while there's not universal agreement among theologians on this, in general, it is thought that the reason for the Lord's severe reaction was that since Achan touched the holy property and therefore was contaminated with holiness, he then likely touched his family members, who in turn became contaminated with holiness. They touched their animals and other personal property. And it all became contaminated. Therefore, all had unauthorized holiness and the only solution was total and complete destruction. You see, the burden of Khan's sin had its worst and most devastating effect on his own household. Isn't that always the way it is? Yet it seems as though we contemplate taking an action that may well be against the Lord, but we don't consider that many innocent people that we love may be hurt or destroyed because of it. Let's move on to chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. I'm going to read it all. Joshua chapter 8, page 249 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't fall into despair. Take all the people who can fight with you, set out, go up to Ai, because now I've handed it over to you. The king of Ai, his people, his city, his land. Do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. But this time, take its spoil. 
and its cattle as booty for yourselves. Ambush the city from behind. So Joshua set out for Ai with all the people who could fight. Joshua chose 30,000 men, the most courageous of his troops, sent them out by night. He instructed them, you're to lie in wait to ambush the city from behind. Stay close in to the city. All of you be ready. I and all the troops with me will approach the city. And when they come out to attack us, as they did before, we're going to run away from them. They will chase after us until we've drawn them away from the city because they'll say, ah, they're running away from us just like they did before. So we'll run away from them. Then you'll jump up from your ambush position, take possession of the city, because Adonai, your God, will hand it over to you. When you've captured that city, set it on fire. Do according to what Adonai has said. Those are your orders. Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place for the ambush, staying between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. When Joshua camped that night with the people... Joshua then got up early in the morning, mustered his men, and went up to Ai ahead of the people, and he and the leaders of Israel. All the troops marching with him went up, advanced, arrived in front of the city, and camped on the north side of Ai with a valley between him and Ai. Then he took about 5,000 men and set them up in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. Thus the people arrayed themselves with all the army to the north of the city, and their rear guard lying in wait to the west of the city. Joshua spent that night in the valley. The king of Ai saw this. So the men in the city hurried out early in the morning to battle against Israel, he and all his people, at a meeting place facing the Arabah. But he was unaware that behind the city an ambush had been laid against him. Joshua and all Israel made as if they had been defeated before, uh, made as if they had been defeated before them and ran off on the road into the desert. All the people of Ai were summoned together to pursue them. So they chased Joshua and they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone after Israel. Pursuing Israel, they left the city wide open. Then I said to Joshua, point the spear in your hand towards Ai because I will hand it over to you. Joshua pointed the spear in his hand towards the city. The men in ambush jumped up quickly from their place. The moment he stretched out his hand, they ran, entered the city, captured it. They hurried to set the city on fire. When the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw it. There was the smoke from the city rising up into the sky, and they had no power to flee this way or that, at which point the people who had run off towards the desert turned back on the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city was going up, they turned back and slaughtered the men of Ai, while the others came out of the city against them too, so that they were surrounded by Israel with some on this side and some on the other. They attacked them, allowing none to remain or escape, but they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished slaughtering all the inhabitants of, of Ai in the countryside, in the desert where they had pursued them, and they had all fallen, consumed by the sword, then all Israel returned to Ai and defeated it with the sword. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, every one in Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, which he had used to point the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city did Israel take his booty for themselves in keeping with the order Adonai had given Joshua. So Joshua burned down Ai, turned it into a tell forever, so that it remains a ruin to this day. 
The king of Ai he hanged on a tree until evening. At sundown Joshua gave an order. So they took his carcass down from the tree, threw it at the entrance of the city gate, piled on big heaps of stones, which is there to this day. Then Joshua built an altar to Adonai, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered the people of Israel to do. This is written in the book of the Torah of Moses. An altar of uncut stones that no one had touched with an iron tool. On it, they offered burnt offerings to Adonai and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the Torah of Moses inscribing it in the presence of the people of Israel. Then all Israel, including their leaders, officials, judges, stood on either side of the ark in front of the priests who were Levites and who had carried the ark for the covenant of Adonai. The foreigners were there along with the citizens. Half of the people were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered them earlier in connection with blessing the people of Israel. After this, he read all the words of the Torah, the blessings and the curse, according to everything written in the book of Torah. There was not a word of everything Moses had ordered that Joshua did not read before all Israel assembled, including the women, the little ones, and the foreigners living with them. Achan has been destroyed and the holy property returned to God justice has been done restoration has happened the immutable spiritual principle is that sin must be confessed and then it must be dealt with in order for God's justice to be satisfied once God's justice is satisfied restoration can happen it was the same spiritual principle that Yeshua did not come to abolish, but to fulfill on our behalf. It is the use of this exact spiritual principle that is the only means to our reconciliation to the Father. Okay. Thus, with reconciliation and restoration accomplished, the Lord tells Joshua, Do not fear, don't despair. God's telling Joshua that he's going to He's going back to that place of his defeat, I, but he's not to fear the same results. And that's because since Joshua and Israel have the burden of a con's sin removed, the Lord will again lead the Israeli army to victory. The Lord says that Joshua is to do to the king of I and his people what was done to Jericho, but there's going to be one significant difference. God has graciously decided that some of the spoils of war will go to the people of Israel. Some of the spoils of war will not be set, aside, will not be set apart and devoted to God as ban. Let's be clear. This means that since God is not asking for some of these spoils to be set apart for him, those things that he gives to the people do not become holy. Now let's talk about this for a minute. Because if the Lord had given the same instruction to Israel when they attacked Jericho, the Khan would never have committed a crime against God. There would have been no crime. What a Khan did in Jericho and died for it and caused his whole family to die for it and caused Israel the greatest of trouble is now being permitted. And I. Why? 
When it was wrong before to take some of the spoils, why is it suddenly okay now? Is this simply a matter of God's will being different in different situations, or is there something more behind this? There's an interesting parallel between this decision of the Lord to allow the people to partake of the spoils in one situation, but not in another, and in the principle of first fruits. Now, I confess to you that while I'm not 100% sure of it, I see this as less of, of, of an interesting parallel and far more as a pattern. That is, it's not that the principle of first fruits is merely similar to the Jericho and I battles, but that the battles for Jericho and I as concerns the disposition of the spoils of war intentionally follow the God-ordained pattern of first fruits. Now, I think I've taught you sufficiently on the principle of first fruits. I don't have to go in depth to review it. The notion is that the first of everything belongs to God. Okay? First fruits isn't, of course, referring only to fruit trees. All right, the first of the fruit tree, fruit. Fruits is a Bible term that means that which is produced. Okay? It's the results of some kind of process. Some scholars have lately taking, taken to using the term firstlings instead of first fruits. And I think that's maybe a better term because in Western culture it sounds more broad and universal rather than just applying to agriculture. Thus, a firstborn is but the human form of first fruits. The first of a man's children, a son, is to be devoted to God. By way of example, the first lamb of a sheep is to be devoted to God. And the first income from a job or a trade is devoted to God. And the first produce from a field or a vineyard or an orchard is devoted to God. Now, although the law of first fruits is stated in quite a number of places in the Torah, and it's applied in a number of passages throughout the Bible, here are just a couple that set the foundation for establishing the ordinance of first fruits. Leviticus 23:10. Tell the people of Israel, after you enter the land I'm giving you and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the Kohen, to the priest. He's to wave the sheaf before Adonai so that you'll be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you're to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering. Its grain offering is to be one gallon of fine flour mixed with olive oil. You're not to eat bread, dried grain, or fresh grain until the day you bring that offering for your God. This is a permanent regulation. Leviticus 19.23 when you enter the land and plant various kinds of fruit trees, you are to regard its fruit as forbidden for three years. For three years it will be forbidden to you and not eaten. In its fourth year, all of its fruit is to be considered holy for praising Adonai. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit so that it will produce even more for you. I'm Adonai, your God. So... The concept is that only after giving God the first of whatever is produced does a man have any right to the remainder. But there is one 
other aspect of first fruits that often escapes us in our rather simplistic mindset. And it's within a statement that probably every believer has uttered at some point in our lives. And we, lo and we love to say, oh, everything belongs to God. Yeah, everything indeed belongs to God. But only some things are devoted to him. And by definition, the first fruits of everything are automatically devoted to him. What does that mean? Well, it means something a lot stronger and more serious than we typically think. The principle we're seeing play out in Joshua is that things devoted to God, people, animals, objects, are God's holy property. God's holy property belongs to God alone. And once devoted to him, no one can make unauthorized use of it without a consequence. On the one hand, the ownership of the property has transferred, so to speak, from the worshiper to God. On the other hand, the Lord says that even though the worshiper may not give him uh, the first fruits of everything, even though you may wrongly hold it back, guess what? It belongs to him nonetheless. It's just that we're misappropriating it. That we might rebel and, and, and keep those firstlings for ourselves doesn't change the fact that those firstlings are already spiritually devoted to him. Because he's declared it to be that way. That's how it operates. That is exactly the problem with what Echan did. Even though those banned items ought to have been physically turned over to God, but they weren't because Achan kept them for himself, doesn't mean that from a spiritual perspective, those things lost their holiness or that suddenly that now they didn't belong to God anymore. I think I see some wheels turning out there. Okay. See, it's not that the first fruits of our income should be devoted to God. It's that by definition, according to God's universal and unchangeable laws, it already is. It's already His, even though we don't realize it. It's only a matter of whether we're going to physically turn it over to Him or we're going to misappropriate it. Okay. Do you have a firstborn son? That son is already the Lord's as the first fruits of your loins. It's only a matter of whether you choose to openly devote that son to God and recognize his status or deny to God what's already his property. See, the thing is, from the big picture standpoint, while indeed everything belongs to God, only the first fruits have to be turned over to Him because they're holy. The remainder, generally speaking, He authorizes for our own use. When we decide to keep His holy property, it's sin, and it's pretty serious. It was Echan's sin, and there will be consequences. Now let's peel this onion back one more later and uh, one more layer and we'll call it a day. Applying the principle of first fruits to Israel being given the land of Canaan. We see what? That the very first city and land 
given to Israel upon entering Canaan was what? Jericho. God's instruction was that all the spoils of Jericho were his. Not one thing could be taken by Israel for their own. This is because, just like the orchard of Leviticus 19.23, all of that first crop is considered devoted to God, and therefore the entire first crop is holy property. And therefore the entire first crop is completely off limits to God's people. But the next year, after God's portion, usually considered to be a tenth of it, is given to him, the remainder is turned over to the people for their use. So while everything in Jericho was devoted to God because it was the first city taken in the promised land, the next city to be taken was I. And with I, the spoils could be taken by the people. All right, Only a portion of it had to be given to God. This is simply following the pattern of first fruits. Okay. Are, you, are you holding back the first fruits of your life? The first fruits that already are God's holy property? You know, it really doesn't matter whether you agree with God or not on the matter. Okay. The law of first fruits has already been set into motion. You can't alter it. You can't stop it. You can only obey it or disobey it. Okay. The first fruits of everything in your life, God has already deemed is His. And there isn't a thing you can do about it. Okay. You're holding on to God's holy property is dangerous. It's very counterproductive and it's a trespass against Him. Whether it's income from your work, whether it's your children, your crops, your ministry, whatever it is, the first fruits of it already belongs to him. And if we're hanging on to it, I suspect things don't go too well. When things didn't go too well for Joshua and Israel, Joshua and the leaders of Israel fell on their faces and they whined and they moaned and they complained to God, why did you do this to us? And the Lord responded by telling him, examine yourself, not me. Okay. It was sin amongst them. In fact, it was the sin of one man, Echan, that was the problem, not God. You see, when Yeshua said, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar, he didn't say, Give it to God so it can be God's. He said, give to God what is God's. Give to God what's already God's. Because to hold it back is to rob God of his holy property. Okay, we'll continue this next week.